Trump versus social media, our 200th episode, and the Pope hat himself, Ken White, returns. This episode is going to be huge. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Welcome back, listeners. What a day. Today's our 200th episode of Legal Talk Today, the big deuce. Two hundo, Utah, get me two. It's our 200th episode. And so thank you so much for investing all this time with us, going through this journey with us. And we know you have other podcasts out there, so we appreciate you tuning into ours. And uh, before we get started on our episode, which I think is going to be a really fun one, we've got to thank our sponsor, Noda. Noda is powered by M&T Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of Noda. No cost IELTA management tool. It helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Visit trustnota.com forward slash legal to learn more. And that's notice spelled N-O-T-A. And remember, terms and conditions may apply. All right, let's say hello to our return guest and friend, Ken White. He's the acclaimed free speech Twitter lawyer on the handle at Pope Hat. He's also host for two separate podcasts. One is on KCRW. It's called All the President's Lawyers. And that one's about legal entanglements of President Trump and President Biden. And of course, he hosts one on our network called Make No Law, which is a storytelling narrative about our right to free speech in this country. I think it's a great show. Welcome back, Ken. It's great to have you on. Lawrence, it's wonderful to be back and congratulations on the 200th episode. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And, you know, I also want to say congratulations. I've been following your exploits of hiking on Facebook and I got to say, you look great. Looks like you're getting out there, getting some fitness in. Looks like you're eating healthy, but uh, you look fantastic. Well, it's very kind. You know, it turned out during the pandemic, all I could do was uh, bake bread or walk, and I'm terrible at baking bread, so I walked a lot. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. So, well, well, uh, Ken, thank you so much for joining us. And of course, we're going to be talking about uh, this Donald Trump versus basically all of social media here. And uh, we're going to get in a little bit of side discussion about Section 230, as we've done before, and talk a little bit about the First Amendment. But I uh, did want to kind of just talk a teeny bit about this case right up front. You know, I did notice uh, when I saw it in the news, I started reading about the media accounts. I thought, you know, it feels like this has kind of been already kind of litigated out. It feels like these uh, these options have been explored before, and I didn't give this too much of a chance. But then I read it, and there's like three separate uh, complaints. Uh, you know, each one going towards you know Facebook one, YouTube one, and Twitter another one, and they're basically the same the same complaint, just slightly different facts that kind of bring in the defendant. But uh, you know, after I read that, I thought you know this is kind of an interesting angle here, and you know, I don't know how successful it will be, but I thought it was definitely an interesting angle. So speaking of interesting, uh, this this case is being set up as a class action. And of course, if you want to build some popularity for your case, and that case happens to be against social media, there probably is no better class representative than the former president, Donald J. Trump. So Ken, my first question to you, you know, tell us about the parties uh, that are involved in this case. Well, sure, uh, Lawrence. And, and like you said, this is really something where they're using Trump's popularity and notoriety to get lots of attention to the case that otherwise it might not have and some more credibility. And a class action is where you use some limited specific plaintiffs to stand in for a large group of people that otherwise it would be very impractical to bring to court and to have act as actual individual plaintiffs. And making something a class action invokes all sorts of additional requirements and complicated legal rules and doctrines, but it can be a useful tool when you want to do something on behalf of hundreds or thousands or even hundreds of thousands of people, and it's really impractical to track them all down, sign them all up, and name them all in the lawsuit. So what they've done here is to take Trump and a few other 
lucky or unlucky individuals, depending on how this comes out, and uh, put them up as the lead plaintiffs and what's called the class representatives. And what happens next, if it gets that far, is that they will try to convince the court that there should be a class and that they should represent that class. And just a couple of quick follow-ups there. Now, I noticed that these hand-picked individuals were named, and of course, these were people that were either kicked off or in some way uh, censored by their own account off of social media. Is there some reason, is there a strategy behind naming a few of these individuals, even though most of them will probably be nameless plaintiffs? Well, yes, you need uh, class representatives. You need named individual plaintiffs in order to have a class action. And it's prudent not to have someone uh, like Donald Trump be the class representative. One of the things that you're going to have to show to have a class is that the class representative is reasonably representative of this big class of people. And Donald Trump, I think it's fair to say, love him or hate him, is sort of in a class by himself. And there's going to be a lot of ways that he may not be fair representative of most people uh, being excluded from Twitter or YouTube or Facebook. So it's a shrewd move. Also, I think it humanizes the case somewhat. It, it you know, points to people other than Trump who are having this issue and who might be more sympathetic in some ways uh, than he is. Yeah, I also noticed there was a June 1st of 2018 and going forward sort of um, restriction on who would fall into sort of these unnamed plaintiffs. Is, it, is that due to the statute of limitations? What's the, uh, what's the purpose of that date limitation? I, I'm sure that's partially it, but it's also just for management purposes so that they can define the class and define what the issues are. So one of the things about the class action is that you have to show that the class, the group of people you want to represent, have um, factual and legal issues in common. And it's easier to do that when you more narrowly define the time period and what the issues are. Uh, once you get past that horizon, then maybe people are being um, banned from these platforms or whatever for different reasons or under different uh, regimes or under different policies. Now, there, there's two primary claims being made here. Uh, one is count one. One is uh, another one is count two. The count one is a First Amendment violation. And count two is this uh, this notion that there are parts of Section 230 that are not constitutional. And we're going to get into a more advanced analysis of that towards the backside of the interview. But I was wondering if you could just give us like a brief highlight of those two counts real quick. Sure. The whole thing about this case is that it's making an argument that people who are wrong on Twitter like to make. Uh, which is that private social media platforms like YouTube and Twitter or Facebook are violating your constitutional rights when they censor you, when they ban you or delete your post or put something on your post saying that you don't know what you're talking about or any of these things. Uh, and we should start out by saying that's just wrong. Uh, the First Amendment uh, limits the government, not private individuals. But they are pushing an argument that's been made in some circles that we should treat uh, these social media platforms for various reasons as if they're the government and therefore make them bound by the Constitution. So the lead claim is that they've been violating people's First Amendment rights by doing moderation these people don't like, by banning them or what's called shadow banning them or deleting their posts or things like that. And the second claim is that a law called Section 230 and more completely, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996 is unconstitutional when it gives these platforms the explicit right to do the very moderation that they're doing. 
All right. Now, if they win, what relief are the plaintiffs asking for in this case? Uh, They're basically asking for all the money in the world and for judges to issue orders saying Twitter, stop being mean to these people or, you know, more seriously, stop deleting their posts or banning them or disciplining them for speech. uh, And for an order saying that Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act is unconstitutional and can't be enforced. All right. Well, let's get into Section 230. Now, you and I have talked on the air about Section 230 before, but uh, just a quick little primer here. You know, without Section 230, we would not have social media or vast parts of the Internet where there's public commentary. And so, Ken, could you just briefly tell us why that is and why is Section 230 so important for us when we want to be able to express ourselves online? Sure. The bottom line is Section 230 gives private websites the ability first of all, to moderate themselves, moderate their content without being sued for it. And second of all, allows them to host comments from a huge array of internet users without being personally liable for what those people say. So understand why it's there. You have to go back to where the law was in the 1990s. All right. This is the sort of the birth of the World Wide Web. The internet's been around, but not terribly long. Websites are just becoming the, to become a thing. And, uh, you know, services that now are ancient, like Prodigy or AOL, have all sorts of chat rooms and bulletin boards and things like that. And what courts are starting to confront is if I write something defamatory on a post on AOL, who's liable for it? Is it just me or is it also AOL? Can you sue AOL, who has a much deeper pocket than I do? Well, maybe not anymore, but they did in the 90s um, for what I posted on their service. And there was a lot of different uh, conflicting opinions from courts about that. But one line of cases suggested that, no, you can't sue AOL for something that Ken posts on their forum unless AOL gets involved in moderation and does edit people's posts and moderate ones they don't like. Then they're getting into the business of changing content and therefore you can sue them. Now, that was a problem. And one of the main reasons Congress thought it was a problem was not so much that it was worried about um, free speech, but it was worried about obscenity. This was the time of one of the periodic uh, surges of moral panic about indecency and pornography on the internet. Uh, And of course, there was pornography on the internet in the 1990s. It was just all very slow. But still, Congress was really super worried that our kids were being corrupted and people had access to dirty pictures and so on and so forth. They wanted websites to make spaces that were safe for kids. They wanted websites to delete uh, pornography, to delete obscenity, to make spaces where people were happy taking their kids and, you know, family-friendly uh, places, but they realized that websites weren't going to do that because websites were saying, well, wait a minute, under these cases, if I moderate stuff on my website, then all of a sudden I'm liable for it. If I ban this person for posting nude pictures, then all of a sudden I am liable for the next person who posts defamation or something like that. I'm not going to do that. So everything is just, you know, the lowest common denominator, the sewer. What Congress did was to pass Section 230. And what Section 230 did was to say two things. Number one, if you're an internet service provider, that means a website, basically, or like an email service, you're not liable for what other people put on your site. You're liable for what you put on your site. So for me, on my my 
Popat Substack. Uh, if I write something on it, I'm liable for it. But if I open it up to comments, I'm not liable for those because I'm the service provider and those are the third parties coming on. That's part one of it. Part two is a, sort of a good Samaritan clause for moderation. And it says that websites aren't going to be liable for the moderation they do, that they can moderate things that they believe are obscene or offensive or anything else. And they're allowed to do that and they can't be sued for it. And there, obviously, the, the idea was really historically not such a free speech thing as it was really, we want everyone to, to moderate the internet to make it cleaner and more family friendly. So you can always count on Congress to buy into moral panics about kids. That probably drove Section 230 more than concerned about free speech, even though now it's essential to free speech. Lawrence, the reason it's essential to free speech is a site like Twitter or Facebook or YouTube, if they are liable for things like defamation, for stuff that they're millions or billions of users put on there, then everything grinds to a halt. Um, they can't possibly substantively moderate everything to decide whether or not it's defamatory. Uh, they would have to just start shutting almost everything down or have moderation regimes so harsh that very little can be posted on there where you can basically get rid of something just by asking for it. And it would really be unworkable. I mean, imagine running your own blog where if someone sneaks in in at 11 at night and posts a defamatory comment about somebody, um, they can then sue you because it was on your blog. That's just unworkable. So Section 230 allows the internet as we understand it to work by allowing people to post content on other people's websites, whether it's you posting a tweet on Twitter or posting a restaurant review on Yelp or posting a comment to a newspaper's uh, forum after an article, all those things you can do. And those places aren't liable for what you write there. This is something you and I talked about before. Now, these social media platforms, you know, through the uh, the Good Samaritan Clause as part of Section 230, they do have wide leeway when it comes to policing the content there, as you said, to try to clean it up. And if they're following their terms of service, even if they do it inconsistently, and even if they do it arguably unfairly, they're still protected by that Section 230, correct? They are. And, and that's not all they're protected by. Uh, it, we have to bear in mind that Section 230 isn't the only source of rights at issue here. The First Amendment also gives you rights. And those rights include uh, freedom of association and freedom of speech. So a website, uh, you know, the, the oft-quoted Mitt Romney said, uh, corporations are people, my friend. And in many senses, they are. And they have the right to freedom of association to decide who gets to be on their websites and they have the right to freedom of expression to decide what content they want on their websites. So just on a larger scale, just so you don't have to let me into your living room to sing opera at one in the morning, even though that's my form of expression that I choose, uh, these sites don't have to let uh, anyone on their site to issue content that they don't want. Of course, Ken, as you as you know, and as most of the audience knows, the First Amendment protects us against infringements from the government when it comes to our free speech. And, and traditionally, that applied to the federal government. Now, the First Amendment still applies to the states and the local governments through the incorporation doctrine within the 14th Amendment. But essentially, our speech is protected from government actors when they decide to uh, make infringements on it or, or curtail it in some way. But 
as you just said, non-governmental actors are not bound by that same code unless they work in some type of governmental capacity. So could you build that out for us a little bit? Sure. So um, the First Amendment uh, to be violated requires state action action by some state actor, not by a private individual. That's why uh, kids, your mom and dad can send you to bed without supper for swearing. Uh, it's why your boss at a private business can fire you for mouthing off at him or her, because those things aren't state action. The First Amendment applies and regulates a situation when it's the government seeking uh, to impose some sort of consequence on your speech. What people who have been arguing about the internet and about social media have done is take on a few outlier cases and emphasize them and say, well, this is what this is about. So there, there's a case uh, called uh, Marsh versus Alabama about a, a proverbial company town. And these were a lot more common in the last century. But, you know, it's a town where basically the corporation with the big local business owns absolutely everything right down to the streets. They own every square foot of land in the entire place. They own all the businesses. And this is like that company store adage, right? It's exactly like a company store, open, except it's even more. The street that leads to the company store is also owned by the company. And so these places would, not surprisingly, decide that uh, they didn't want union organizers on them or they didn't want uh, you know, a pamphleteers or they didn't want anyone engaging in any sort of expression that they didn't specifically uh, allow. And what the Supreme Court said in this case is that when you so completely take over the role of the government in every sense, then we're going to treat you as the government. Um, and therefore, because this company town was owned uh, even down to the streets and all the public services, we were going to treat them like the government. And therefore, they had to act as if they were bound by the First Amendment. So people say, well, uh, Twitter is the new public square. Twitter is acting like the government. Uh, but it, it, that that's, and, and I'm going to say this um, judgmentally, completely wrong. Uh, it is not a good argument, and it's an argument that's at the center of Trump's lawsuit. The Supreme Court has made very clear, as recently as uh, two years ago, that this whole uh, equivalent of the government thing only happens when uh, the entity is taking over exclusively government functions. And that's not what a forum is. And, and so in, in 2019, in a case called Halleck, uh, the Supreme Court took on a case where the government was letting a private company run a cable channel. And someone said, well, the, you know, it's, it's supposed to be a government run. It's supposed to be public access, uh, but they're letting a private company do it. And, and therefore, it should be governed by the First Amendment. And the Supreme Court said unanimously no, private companies don't become government actors just because they throw open a forum for speech. Um, and then, you know, the majority and minority disagreed on other issues, but they were unanimous on that point. And that's even, you know, with all the conservatives and the Trump appointees on the court. So there is no good current constitutional argument that Twitter or Facebook should, under the company town theory, uh, be treated as a state actor. The Supreme Court has completely refuted that because uh, putting, uh, putting up an online public forum for us to insult each other is not an inherently governmental function. They have not taken over an inherently governmental function. So it's just a bad argument. 
All right. Well, so that's kind of uh, the gist of count one. And so I, I definitely want to hit that just a little bit further because there's a couple different ways they weave this in there. And I want uh, you know, I want to hear your uh, analysis in response to that. So this count one, uh, the plaintiffs are making the case that the social media companies were induced, encouraged, or promoted by Congress to do something that Congress could not do itself constitutionally. And what the plaintiffs claim is that through the actions of social media, they were able to censor or silence oppositional viewpoints. And so here's a couple of the examples they, they, they threw out there as uh, kind of building their case. And then I want to kick it over to you for your response to us. So they said, you know, the whole notion that Section 230 exists gives these platforms the ability to do business the way that they have been. And so during uh, the course of last year, of course, we had COVID-19 and there was an election cycle. Um, they claimed that, you know, certain direct pleas from influential government actors like Vice President Kamala Harris, and I think she was still candidate at the time, and of course, former First Lady Michelle Obama were directly asking to have, you know, uh, people like Donald uh, Trump, the former president, taken off of social media. They also claim, uh, the plaintiffs claim that there was threats of litigation and antitrust and uh, threats, you know, by these lawmakers to change the regulatory framework of Section 230, which would curtail their business unless things changed on these social media platforms. And then here's the part that I think was interesting Um, The social media platforms voluntarily kind of partnered up with the CDC, the director of National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, of course, talking about Dr. Anthony Fauci, but also, and this was an unnamed uh, senior Biden administration official, uh, teamed up with them to basically try to curtail what they believe was misinformation about COVID-19 and vaccines. And so in so doing, you know, if you had... um, you know, an opinion that disagreed, you were fact-checked, or sometimes your videos were pulled down. That's what's being alleged in this case. So given all of that, and given that the government can sort of giveth and taketh away with Section 230, you know, if it decides to change it, when it partners up with social media platforms like this, and they want to inject this government messaging, and in so doing, it essentially eliminates oppositional messaging on the social media platform, does that change your analysis, or do you still find that count one wanting? It, it's a terrible argument. And even exploring it a little bit shows why it is. Now, it's true the government can't do things through agents they couldn't do themselves. And the classic example is, you know, if a cop doesn't have a warrant for my house, you can't just find one of my neighbors and send them in there to search my house for them without a warrant, because then the person's acting as the government's agent. But what they're trying to say here is that somehow the government uh, talking about expression they like or, or don't like, or they want to encourage or don't want to encourage somehow turns it into state action. And that can't be right. You know, first of all, Harris, before she was elected and Michelle Obama, after she, she left the White House, are not government actors. So anything they're asking for can't be somehow transformed into government speech. And the government, members of Congress, members of the executive branch, complain about media all the time. So that doesn't transform uh, media choices into somehow being state action. I mean, think of how often there's some big push in the, in Congress to go after obscenity or indecency. I mean, when, when Tipper Gore was on Capitol Hill and Congress was railing about how terrible rap lyrics were, if some record company decided to shift its priorities and start putting out country music instead, that wouldn't make that state action. Okay, uh, and you know the t- all the times that Trump 
complained about how he was being unfairly treated in the media and suggested, hey, maybe I should start doing antitrust investigations or turn down these mergers or, or this sort of thing. That didn't turn the reactions by the media into state action. Uh, the notion is completely ridiculous and it has no natural limits. So uh, you can imagine a situation where, well, I want my new uh, game show to be called Hot Nude Models Talk About Personal Jurisdiction Law. And someone on Capitol Hill says, this is terrible, this is obscene, and so they ditch it and go with something else. That doesn't mean I've been suppressed by the government. It's still the private entity making decisions based on input. Is some of the input griping by the government? Yes, but it's always going to be, and that somehow doesn't transform the decisions uh, into state action. Now, you could possibly have a situation where you could draw a direct enough line where uh, the government made a very direct demand to censor this particular person um, that it could possibly turn into state action. But that's not what really what they're talking about here. And for to say it's state action because the media takes up causes the government wants it to emphasize, like, you know, whether it's um, safety during a pandemic or information about vaccines, that's also ludicrous. I mean, the government co-ops the media like that all the time for all sorts of issues. Uh, the, the media does it on behalf of law enforcement. The media does it on behalf of the military. Uh, more often than not, it's conservative messages that are being, uh, you know, basically uh, ob obediently repeated by the media. That doesn't make it state action. It may make it bad choices by the media. You might wish they had more of a backbone, but that somehow doesn't mean that the voices who aren't being heard uh, are somehow being uh, having their First Amendment rights violated. All right, now we're running out of time, but I definitely want to hit just briefly the, the second count there, this uh, this claim by the plaintiffs that Section 230, at least parts of it, are unconstitutional. So just real quickly, can you walk us through that analysis? Yeah, the, the argument seems to be that you're illegally giving these media platforms the right to ban us and to moderate us and protecting them from lawsuits when we do that. But uh, to say that's wrong is uh, it's begging the question. It's, it's going back to the first argument that they have some sort of protected right not to be moderated on social media. And the only protected right at issue is the protected re right for these platforms to have the type of platform they want as an exercise of their free speech or as an exercise uh, of their free association. Lawrence, do you remember Club Penguin? You know, I can't say that I do. So Club Penguin was this really cute little graphical social media platform to kids would be on with little, you know, pen, penguin avatars and all these other cute animal avatars. And they would all run around and interact with each other. It was charming and it was for young children. Now, it would not violate my First Amendment rights if I went on Club Penguin and started shouting Nazi slogans at people and they banned me because the people who ran Club Penguin had a First Amendment right to have the type of platform they wanted to have. Uh, and that included a type of platform that was for young kids and suitable for young kids. And Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, they have the same First Amendment rights. If if Twitter wants to have exactly what it's being accused of having, a, a mindless liberal echo chamber, 
then that is their First Amendment right. They can organize that way. You know, they have to obey laws uh, that exist, like you know, not kicking out people based on race or gender, but they can absolutely have the type of discussion forum. The same in the same vein, you know, the Daily Wire or the Federalist or these other sites that are conservative, they don't have to let liberals uh, dominate their uh, their forums and their conversational groups. They can ban people for uh, liberal thought that they don't like, and they do all the time, because that is an exercise of their First Amendment rights to free expression and freedom of association. So the only rights at issue here are the ones that they are trying to undermine through this lawsuit. It's, it's a thoroughly frivolous lawsuit, and I really think it is not seriously intended to succeed. I think it is seriously intended to do two things. One is to act as a fundraising vehicle, and there were massive fundraising appeals put out immediately after it was filed, uh, citing it, look how we're fighting back against the evil social media, and just uh, a sort of generate excitement amongst the base of Trump voters. Well, Ken, you sort of beat me to the punch on my last question. I was going to ask you if this lawsuit had any type of prayer, but I think you already uh, already addressed that. So, well, Ken, thank you so much for joining us on our 200th episode. It was really great having you on. I know everybody at the network missed you just a whole lot. Well, I've uh, missed working with you guys and look forward to uh, talking to you again. And thank you listeners for tuning in. We really appreciate the time you invest with us. And if there's a special topic you'd like us to cover, reach out, drop us a line. You can find us at legaltalknetwork.com. And also one more thank you to our sponsor, Noda. You can find them at trustnoda.com forward slash legal. And that's known as spelled N-O-T-A. And last but never, ever least, thank you to our team for grinding it out for 200 episodes of Top Notch Lost Planning, producer Molly McDonough and our LT and audio crew. They really are the best. Thank you team for all of your extended efforts. Oftentimes, I know that goes into extra innings, so it's much, much, much appreciated. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Cletty. Have a great day, everybody. (laughs) 